In Matthew's presentation of the genealogy of Jesus, which was aimed, if you weren't with us last Sunday, at substantiating Jesus' Jewish heritage, taking his lineage all the way back to Father Abraham, as well as to establish Jesus' right to the throne of King David. Matthew concludes this genealogy, writing in verse 16, he says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Again, we noted last Sunday that in this verse, Matthew is really, he's doing something clever. He's hammering home two important realities concerning Jesus. First, he's crystal clear that Jesus was not, in any way, shape, or form, Joseph's biological son, and was conceived by Mary alone. Introducing Joseph as, note, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Matthew's doing something clever in the Greek language. This phrase, of whom, it's, it's both singular and feminine. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom specifically Jesus was born. Matthew here is, in a lot of ways, affirming uh, what I would call the virgin conception. You know, we, we talk about the virgin birth. And that makes sense. I, I guess I understand it. But for sure, a virgin gave birth. But that was, <laughs> that was the natural byproduct of a much greater miracle of the virgin conceiving a child with no human, uh, no male interaction. And so he's affirming here the virgin conception. He is eliminating Joseph from being the biological birth father of Jesus Christ. That said, since Joseph, as Matthew articulates, was the husband of Mary, he's also saying that while Jesus wasn't the biological son of Joseph, he was an adopted son. As such, Jesus, through Joseph, his father, his earthly stepfather, would have a legal standing to sit on the throne of David, which was important. Now, with regards to the birth of Christ Jesus, since this gospel was written with the intention of presenting Jesus as the promised king. Yes, the king of the Jews, but also the king of heaven, our king. Unlike Luke, who focuses more on the humanity of Jesus, which naturally means that he would center his accounting of the birth of Christ on Mary, of whom he shares biology with. Matthew, he focuses regarding the birth of Jesus, his account, not on Mary, matter of fact, there's very little to do with Mary, uh, but on this man, Joseph. In fact, by the end of this morning's study, I hope you understand, hopefully I will have explained why Matthew takes this particular and really unique approach. Let's dive into the text, beginning with verse 18, because we left off with verse 17. We read now, the birth of Jesus Christ, again, Jesus the Christ, a title, was as follows, which is a fancy way of saying, I'm going to tell you how it all went down. After his mother Mary was betrothed, to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Again, pertaining to the virgin conception, all, all Matthew tells us is that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Understanding that his focus will be on Joseph's role, Matthew really mounts a zero attempt to explain the miracle other than to confirm the supernatural origins of, of this pregnancy. Mary was with child. Matthew adds that it was through a working of the Holy Spirit. It gives us nothing more than that. Focus instead on the unique experiences of Joseph, in contrast to Mary, 
of whom Jesus had this important genealogical connection. The key idea that Matthew is presenting to us is that while Mary, this woman Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, but before they had come together, she was found with child. She was found, discovered. It was revealed. Like right from the jump, the way that, the way that Matthew's writing this, like you would have seen this line. She's betrothed to Joseph. Before they had come together, she's found with child. Bum, bum, bum. Like this would have been scandalous. Just even in the way that you're reading it, the way that's articulated, the way it's being presented. She's found with child? Now, I should just quickly just relay a bit of the process by which people were married in Jewish culture in the first century. Uh, very similar to some of the processes today, but there were three distinct phases. First, there was what was known as the Shadukim. And this was a prearrangement that was made between families, namely the fathers, years before that their kids, you know, these snotty-nosed little kids running around the playground, would be married. It was a prearrangement. Prearranged marriages were the, the norm. The Shadukim was then followed by a second phase that was known as the Erizin. This was an official agreement. So you go from an arrangement to an agreement. It was an engagement period. See, the kids in this phase had reached marrying age and to bind this uh, handshake made years before, what was known as the mohair, or literally the purchase price for the, the bride. We call it in more uh, recent cultural norms the dowry. Ends up being paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride. Now, when that transaction happens in this second phase, a handshake moves to something that's now binding. When the mohair, when the money was exchanged, these two, the husband, the, 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 the man, the woman, the groom, the bride, they are legally married. So much so that within Jewish culture, the only way even at this point they could separate would be through some type of, of legal official divorce proceeding. And yet the union between these two was not to be consummated quite yet. In fact, each of the two parties in this second phase, which we would call betrothal, had to live separately. The woman, Mary, with her father, while Joseph, the groom, is busy preparing an adequate dwelling place where they can start their life together. It'd be kind of the kind of saying, hey, you can marry my daughter, uh, but you need to get a job, and, uh, and you need to have some evidence that you have a place to stay. Like, I need to talk to your, your leasing agent at the apartment complex, or like, you're not living in the basement. Like, you get your stuff together, and then we can, we can move forward. But they are married. So Joseph would be building like an extension to his father's house. And this period uh, didn't have a defined separation, like a defined period of time in which they would live separately. Uh, it was common, though, that it would be approximately about a year, give or take. Not long, but significant. Finally, this second period would give way to a, a final stage that was known as the Neshuan. Once the home was completed, Past inspection by the father of the groom, he'd be given permission, the groom, by his father to go and retrieve his bride. There'd be a lot of fanfare. He would go, he would pick her up, he would bring her back to her father's house. There'd be a wedding ceremony. The entire community would join in. There'd be a celebration. The marriage at long last would be consummated. 
So when Matthew here tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, adding that they had not yet come together, so they haven't had intercourse, we know, logically, that they're in this second phase, the arisen. Now, this tells us a few things that I think is important to add some texture to the story. First, it tells us that their families, the families of, of Mary and Joseph, knew each other well. In fact, they were, they were probably close. They were friends. Nazareth was not a big place. It's likely Mary and Joseph grew up together. Early on, at some point, the families were sitting around the table. The fathers hatch a plan. You know, as a sign of their enduring friendship. One day, those two running around, Mary and little Joe, would become husband and wife. We can also surmise that since they were officially betrothed to one another, that Joseph's father had paid the mohair for Mary. So the transaction has taken place. It's, it's binding. They are legally married at this point. Now it's true that Mary is living in her father's house. She is waiting for, for that day to come where Joseph would, would retrieve her. Joseph is busy preparing a home so he can go and retrieve his bride. This is where things stand within our story. Now keep in mind, for months, Joseph has been working his tail off. <laughs> I mean, the man has motivation, let's be real. He's working hard. His days are feel, filled with hard labor. His thoughts are dominated by the hopes and the dreams of, of, of this wonderful life that he and Mary would be sharing with one another. His nights, his lonely nights, sure would be enraptured by, by the anticipation of Mary laying with him soon. In fact, the day where Joseph can't come quick enough. You know, I'm even sure that, that, that the news that Mary had gone down to Hebron to care for her cousin Elizabeth during her final trimester wouldn't have caused him any alarm. I mean, that was a normal thing. In fact, Joseph, as he's contemplating, is still kind of blown away that Lizzie and Zacharias had been able to conceive, you know, especially at their ages. Tragically, though, Joseph's life, we don't talk much about Joseph, but Joseph's life takes a very hard an unexpected turn. When following Mary's return to Nazareth, a rumor begins circulating. It's all over Facebook. His betrothed wife has been found with child. Now, at first, Joseph can't believe it. There's no way. It can't be true. Not Mary, not his Mary. Sadly, though, in walks his father. Joseph can see the pain, the hesitancy in his eyes. He, he knows that his dad just doesn't know what to say to break. Terrible news. Overcome with emotion, Joseph does what any man in that situation would do. He leaves. He breaks protocol. He's got to verify this for himself. He runs across town to Mary's house. And sure enough, she opens the door. And Joseph discovers the unimaginable, doesn't he? Like the love of his life was standing right before him, showing the undeniable signs of pregnancy. Probably about like this. 
can't laugh at yourself, you can't laugh at others. Joseph, I mean, he falls apart. I mean, wouldn't you? In such a situation. Like, all of his plans have been, have been ruined. Like, he's spinning. His heart crushed. He's in agony. And he's angry. His thoughts are racing. His imaginations, I mean, wouldn't yours, are running wild? Like, imagine Joseph's reaction. The humanity of it. Mary. Mary, how could you do this to me? I thought, I thought you loved me. I mean, wasn't, wasn't, I, wasn't I worth waiting for? And the promises that you made, the conversations that we've had, I thought you wanted to start a life with me ever since we were kids. Mary, I've, I've, I've always loved you. My heart has been yours. And I've dreamed for years of the day that you would become my wife and we'd start our life together. I've been home every day laboring so that we could start that life. And I was so close. Why couldn't you wait? I've remained chaste for you. I've kept myself for you. It, it would be only natural, and again, if, if I'm Joseph, at some point, who's the father? I know it's not me. Who's your baby's daddy? I feel like, at a minimum, I deserve a name. Now, imagine how Mary's explanation to Joseph would have come across. Joey, I do love you. Nothing's changed. I'm just excited today as I was way back when to begin our life. We're betrothed. I love you. And I know that this is all going to sound, sound weird. But I have kept myself for you. I have remained chaste. I am a virgin. I've been waiting for our wedding night. I know, I know this is kind of an unforeseen development, but, but you have to trust me. Joey, a few months ago, before I went and before I visited Elizabeth, an angel named Gabriel, he appeared to me. And he said that I was going to be the mother of the Messiah. I didn't understand how that would be possible, and I explained it to Gabriel, since I've never known a man. But he said the Holy Spirit would come upon me, and the power of the highest would overshadow me. I have no idea, Joseph, what all of that means, other than the fact that it didn't take long for me to realize. I was pregnant. You want to know who the, the baby daddy is? This baby is God's son. I should be Joseph. I mean, of all of the excuses, really. That was the best you could come up with? You're going to blame God? This makes sense to me, then why we read in verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, despite the raw human emotions flowing through Joseph's veins, it, it does say a lot about this particular man, his, in, his integrity, his character. 
that he doesn't, he doesn't react rashly, nor, nor does he act out in spite. It doesn't fly off the handle. Like to this point, the phrase was minded implies a very deep consideration of, of Joseph to what's really going on here. In fact, in the next verse, which we'll get to, Matthew will write that Joseph thought about these things. You see, Joseph, he demonstrates here an amazing self-discipline and wisdom, really. And that he took time to think things through before deciding what to do. And as he weighs the options in front of himself, the most logical conclusion that he can reach in the moment is that, is that Mary, he loves her, he cares for her, but she has in some way lost grip with reality. I mean, she's gone nuts. She thinks she's pregnant with God's kid. I mean, she really believes it. Like, she's convincing even. Like, Joseph would have been well within his rights. Again, because they're legally married. For this to have been constituted as adultery, for her to have been dragged into the town square and stoned to death. Adultery was punishable by death. But as Joseph is thinking about it, as he's considering this, as he's looking at the options, he's like, how do you do that to a crazy person? I mean, she's lost it. There's some humanity to it. There's, there's some, some love and care. Ma Matthew also tells us that, that Joseph was a just man. The word translated here, just, it means literally that he was a righteous man. It's not used of many people in the scriptures. See, there was a virtue to Joseph's character. Like, clearly he's kind. He's a kind man. And he's wanting to be merciful. Yes, he's hurt. There's no question. But he doesn't want to make Mary a public example either. He knew her family, right? And he knows the embarrassment. That he knows what they're dealing with. They're getting the same story. I mean, he doesn't want to cause them more pain, all things considered. Like, why make, why make it all worse? Matthew ends verse 19 by letting us know that Joseph, he's, he's leaning. He hasn't made up his mind, but he's leaning towards putting her away secretly. Like, Joseph doesn't believe her story. And in contrast, likely the advice that was being given to him by his friends and family, he, he doesn't want Mary to suffer for this to be public any more than it needed to be or already was. Joseph reasons that the best solution here would be a quick, quiet divorce. It would enable him to move on with his life. It would minimize just any further embarrassment or scandal. Verse 20, but... While Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, wife in a, in a legal sense, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The word Jesus, it means Jehovah is salvation. And why should you name him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. <laughs> Again, maybe, I, I might indulge a little too much in this, but you just have to go with me. You hear the story often. It's hard to get into the moment. But imagine again, you're Joseph and you wake up from the dream. 
You have all this on your mind, on your heart. You've been going through all this. What do I do? Do I put her away secret? How does this play out? And then you have this dream and you wake up, right? Like in, in, in an instant, your skepticism has transformed to wonder. Your despair has morphed into joy. Your pain has been supplanted with a genuine relief. A relief over what? Mary had been telling you the truth. She hadn't betrayed you. She hadn't cheated on you. Mary had remained faithful. She really did love you. Once more, you're Joseph, right? You're sitting there in your bed, and you're in awe. You're in awe of this woman, this woman Mary. The reality that this girl you've known your entire life, this woman that you had loved and pledged yourself to, I mean, you knew her, she was special. She knew, you knew she was a righteous gal. But my goodness, Mary had been chosen by the God of the universe to bring into the world the promised king. There was no question. I mean, you're convinced that there is something supernatural, radical has taken place in Mary's life. It's a work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. Your wife would be the mother of the Messiah, the Most High. The phrase here, for he will save his people from their sins, is, is a radical statement, really. The coupling that you have here, for he will save. In the Greek, it's emphatic. And what that means is that it's not just that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. It, it means for he, that only he, he and only he could save his people from their sins. There's no other option but Jesus. You shall name him Jesus, for he and only he will save. Peter actually affirms this in Acts 4, verse 12. He says, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Now, through this astonishing revelation, provided to him by an angel of the Lord, and we don't know if this was Gabriel, Likely, but we're not told that specifically. Just an angel, one of the angelic hosts. Joseph here, though, he comes to this, this understanding, this realization, that this male child that Mary is carrying in the womb, yes, he's the king, that's true, but the revelation here reveals more to Joseph. He's not just the king, but Joseph realizes that Jesus would also be a savior and not just a savior from anything, a savior from sin. And this would have been a radical notion in the day for most Jews. You see, in this day, the Jews had come to see their, the, the, the Messiah, this promised king, the descendant of David, as being, yes, a liberator. But in their mind, they saw it in a very physical context. He would be a liberator, a king, a liberator from Roman occupation, of which they were dealing with. But Matthew here, in recounting what the angel reveals to Joseph, is making it known here in the first chapter that, yeah, Jesus is a king and he's a liberator, but from a much greater foe than Rome. The enemy known as sin. You know, don't overlook the entire purpose in Jesus' coming to earth. Jesus didn't come to give you some type of, of moral code or like a new ethic by which you could live. Like Jesus didn't come, and this is going to hit some of you weird, but he didn't come to make you a better you. 
or to somehow increase your self-worth or make you feel better about yourself. Like, that's not the intention. That's not his purpose. (laughs) Jesus didn't even come to help you attain the purpose-driven life. Instead, what did Jesus come? Why did he come? We're told very specifically, he came to save you from your sins. You know, when we discuss concepts like sin, it's so easy for us to speak in platitudes, Christianese, and really in, in, in saying things. Oh, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Like, what does that actually mean? Like, what's being articulated by that? For starters, this, this word that we have translated as sin. The word sin, it, it's an archery term, in fact. It means to miss the mark. The sin, missing the mark. It, it describes, in a, in a religious connotation, falling short of, of a standard that God had established for humanity. So you fall short of that standard. You've missed the mark of that standard. Since this is the case, you aren't a sinner because you sin. The Bible actually establishes the idea that that you sin because you're a sinner. I'll give you an illustration related to the, the archery idea. Like every arrow will miss the mark if the bow is warped. Like if there's a fundamental problem with, with the bow, I mean, you can, you can pull back every day and, and you're going to miss. You're going to miss high, you're going to miss low. You're, well, what? well, yes, you're missing, but why? Because the bow is missing. The, the bow is broken. It's warped. Like what this means in the implications is that sin, when we talk about sin, sin manifests in your life really in two ways. Sin manifests as first an identity. You are a sinner. As well as then through your behaviors, you sin. So think of it that way. I'm a sinner and I sin. I have this identity and that identity manifests into behaviors. Your behaviors fall short of God's standard for humanity. Why? Because you fall short. You're a broken bow and arrow. You see, when we read that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Like we understand that in doing that, Jesus came to, to, to do two things, right? First, he came to fundamentally transform your identity. You got to fix the bow. The first goal in saving someone from their sins is the identity of sin. To transform that identity, who we were. Again, the Bible uses phraseology. All things have passed away. All things are becoming new. The old man versus the new man. So first, transforming an identity from sin to righteousness, knowing then that in turn, it will manifest in a change in behavior. Like what you do, how how you live. For example, when someone says, and I'm 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 gonna tiptoe ever so gently. When someone says that, that, that they act a certain way because they were born a certain way, they're actually speaking the truth. It's a partial truth, but it's still the truth. And yet you can always tell the person who doesn't see the full picture of the gospel when they then say that Jesus loves me 
just the way that I am? (laughs) No, he doesn't. He doesn't like you just the way that you are. In fact, Jesus actually finds the way that you were born to be perverted, deviant, destructive, a far shadow from the person that he intends you to be. Sure, Jesus loves you. That much is true. No matter what you're up to or doing, Jesus does love you. So much so that he died on the cross. Why? To change you from who you are and what you're doing. Jesus came to save you from the way that you are. He loves you, but he wants to transform who you are, knowing that in turn it transforms the things that you're doing. Again, we're all born with this warped bow, which explains why our lives miss God's standard, which is why a rebirth is what Jesus came to do. To transform you, knowing that if he transforms you, he'll transform what you do. Again, if you are, if you're not, if you're, if you're a sinner, not because you sin, you sin because you're a sinner, then you can live a life of righteousness, not by doing righteous things, but by being made righteous. Again, that's why it all centers on identity and who I am, knowing that who I am manifests in what I do. So Jesus came to save us from our sin. He came to save you from you how you are, in order to change what you do. Both are true. It's also worth pointing out how the instruction given by the angel, and look again at the text, this jumped out at me. He says, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right? You've, you've probably recited that at Christmas time or, or in various, and you shall call his name <laughs> Jesus. Who's the you? Man, this would have landed with Joseph. Like, it would have hit him hard. You see, in this culture, names mattered. And the act of naming held a profound significance. Now, it's true that this child was named by God, God the Father. Jesus, that would be his name. But the job of then naming the child Jesus, it's entrusted to whom? His name will be Jesus. You name him Jesus, which which had an implication. Like, not only does this mean that God had providentially chosen Mary to be the mother of Jesus, but it means that God had chosen Joseph to be the male authority and the life of his son, Jesus. You, Joseph, you call his name Jesus. You name him. Like, of all the people that God could have picked, not only did he pick Mary, which we talk enough about, but God picked Joseph, this righteous man, to raise his son. How cool. It's fairly awesome. I I gander that it had to have been challenging for Joseph. (laughs) I mean, in the moment to be like, chewing on the reality that it's, it's, like God has sent a message through an angel that your wife is pregnant with his kid that's now being entrusted to your care. You name him. You gotta take care of him. Like, your job is to care for God's kid. Like, practically. The first thing, I got to protect him. Like, job number one, keep Jesus alive. (laughs) Savior of the world, I got to make sure this little ball of joy makes it. Additionally, Joseph, I mean, shoulder, he's not wealthy. We'll get to that next week. 
But he's shouldering the burdens of like, and, and, and keeping him alive, I've got to provide shelter and food. You know, while it's true that by adolescence, Jesus had come to the full knowledge of who his father really was. That Joseph was a stepfather and his father, he had a heavenly father. But, but aside from that, like basic sociology tells us that Joseph, as Jesus' father figure, as being like the most significant male during Jesus' developmental years, he would have had a tremendous influence on Jesus. And God had it that way. Like God chose him for that. And now, obviously, Jesus is sinless. And Joseph's impact, restricted to a degree, I don't want to get into all the complex nature of that, but Luke, chapter 2, verse 40, tells us that Jesus grew and became strong in spirit. He learned. And how did he learn? His dad. What this means is that God, as the man that God had entrusted to care for his son, Joseph, Joseph did things. He was charged with the responsibility of doing things that would help facilitate the growth that God would accomplish in the life of his son. I, I'm sure as a result that Joseph was like, Mary, this is God's kid. He's going to be the savior of the world. You know, at a minimum, he needs to be in synagogue every week. Like, it's my responsibility. I know he's going to tell me more about the scriptures than I will, but I got to get that kid in church every Sunday at, at least. Once a week. <laughs> as, I, as I was playing this out, like, really, like, how cool must it have been for Joseph teaching the word that became flesh how to read? Like, there's, like, he holds a unique place, doesn't he? Uh, what must it have been like for Joseph bandaging up the straight knee? of the one who had formed man from the dust of the earth. Or showing the creator how to now create using human hands, something he hadn't done before. I mean, Jesus had it good, easy. He just spoke things into existence. You know, now, like Joseph is like, well, we can't speak things into existence anymore, Jesus. This is a chisel. You know, this is called a hammer. Like, we got to build things. You know, it's not an accident that by the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was known as the carpenter from Nazareth. And without question, Jesus had learned the trade how? By working in the shop alongside the carpenter from Nazareth, a man named Joseph. You know, as you really think through the implications of raising God's kid, you can understand why the angel begins, look again, by saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. <laughs> like, you only need to caution someone, do not be afraid, when there's due cause for that person to be afraid. Right? And if I'm Joseph and, and like, you name him. What? Like, really? Like, not only is the job in front of him challenging and large and intimidating, but then, like, Joseph realizes that, like, the decision to take Mary as his wife was going to radically complicate things. Like, how is Joseph going to look his friends and family in the face and explain that his decision to remain with Mary was God's doing? Like, how was he going to float that idea in a way that made any sense? I mean, he already knew 
The quote, angel appeared to me in a dream story, sounded preposterous. He had heard Mary already float that line. I imagine the moment. Yeah, Dad, um, I'm still going to marry Mary. Yeah, I know, I know. That, I, I know, I know, I get it. But yeah, I, I, sure, I know I'm going to have to raise someone else's kid. I'm aware. But you shouldn't worry. It's, it's God's. <laughs> it's God's son. People would think, in addition to Mary being nuts, that Joseph was nuts. Now, before we look at, at Joseph's reaction to the dream in verses 22 and 23, Matthew, he does what, what he'll do often. We'll see this frequent. He connects these things kind of, he tethers them back to an Old Testament context. Matthew, jumping into the narrative, says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I, I want you to circle a phrase there. This is kind of a side point. But, but Matthew here, he sees Old Testament scripture as being what? God speaking through a human instrument like a prophet. This is what was spoken by the Lord, we know, through the prophet. It's an important phrase. And what, what was spoken? Well, now he quotes from Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And connecting Jesus and kind of this whole origin story back to Isaiah the prophet. In addition to the core mission of the Messiah, centering on saving his people from their sins and, and not so much like liberating them from Roman occupation. Matthew here, he's also bringing to the attention of his Jewish audience two more very important truths about the Messiah they didn't realize or understand. First, according to what Isaiah writes, what the Lord said, the sign of the Messiah's coming would be the virgin conceiving. Like you see, the arrival of the Christ, this promised Savior, was of such importance to God. He did everything humanly possible, divinely possible, to make sure you didn't miss it. Like think about that. He's saying like, hey, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to give you a sign. It's never happened before in the history of the world. It'll never happen afterwards. When you see the virgin conceive, it doesn't happen. So when that happens, you should know the child's important. Just saying. Like that's the whole idea here. Like, I want you to know that the Messiah is here. So when the virgin conceives, know the Messiah is here. That's what Matthew's saying. Secondly, while the Messiah would be a human descendant of David, we're also being told that he would be God. He would be divine. According to Isaiah, they shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. Like, we could do a whole Bible study on the incarnation. We're not going to. I just want to point out, make sure you're aware, that the Bible makes the undeniable claim that Jesus was not, was not just a man, that he's God, that he's completely divine. It means that Jesus, despite what you think of him or not, what the Bible says of him, is that he's more than a man, and he's more than a teacher, and he's more than a guru. Jesus, in Jesus we have the incarnation of God taking unto himself human flesh and living among us. Incarnation. Incarne. Carne asada. Flesh and meat to God. That's how I process things, through food. Jesus, according to the scriptures, is fully man, but he's also fully God. Now before we move on, 
And we will finish the chapter. I do want to clarify, just quickly, a perceived conflict within the text we just read. If you notice, in verse 21, Joseph is instructed, you shall call his name Jesus. But then in verse 23, we read, Isaiah declared, they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what's his name? Is it Jesus? Or is it Emmanuel? And the answer couldn't be more clear. Yes. You see, while Joseph had been instructed to give God's son the name Jesus, you shall name him. Isaiah says they, or the masses, would refer to him as being Emmanuel. Think of it this way. Tom Brady is known by his name, Tom Brady. He's also known as the GOAT. Two names equally true. The title Emmanuel refers to who he is. He is God with us. The name Jesus emphasizes what he'd come to do. Jehovah's salvation. He had come to save his people from his sins. God with us, and he's come to save us. Uh, let me add an additional wrinkle. And this is something that you need to know in case technology and, you know, gets us to the point. But let's say we can finally get in a time machine. I'm excited for that day. I think that will be cool. And let's say you get put in the coordinates, and you're going to go all the way back to the first century, Galilee. And why? You want to find Jesus. And so you get out of your time machine, your DeLorean, and you're making your way around the shores, and you're asking people, yo, bro, where's Jesus? You would be a little taken back that not a single person has any idea who you're referring to. Why? Because his, his name's not Jesus. Like in the Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, which if you translate from Hebrew Yeshua directly into English, you get what word? Not Jesus, Joshua. Yeshua is Joshua. Like we've butchered the name of our own Savior. Now, let, I'll explain how we did that. Instead of going Hebrew directly to English, because, well, English wasn't there, we went from Hebrew to Greek, Greek to Latin, Latin to English, which is how we ended up with Jesus. Now, what's amazing about it is that Joshua, I mean, it's a reference to one of the great heroes of old, the one that led them into the, the land of promise, the one that took the mantle from Moses. But as such, the name, the name Joshua, this expression of Jehovah is salvation, this expression of the anticipation of the Messiah, it was an incredibly common name. Which again, if you're, if you're Joseph and you're like, you get this story from the angel and you're like, you shall name him Bob. <laughs> you know, like, like, like it, the, way that it, the way that it just lands, it's like, Bob? Like you couldn't come up with anything more distinct or flavorful? You shall name him Yahshua. Joshua. For he will save his people from, from their sins. And what, one of the things I love about it is that even right from the beginning, like it tells us uh, that there's, there's a simplicity to who Jesus is. And the way that he came. In, in fact, it really reinforces what, what Paul wrote of the Lord in Philippians 2. He says, and we'll see this confirmed over and over. He says that in being in the form of God, he made himself of no reputation, take, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, 
and being, in found, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Bob, this common name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love it. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Again, just very quickly to my Catholic friends. The phrase, did not know her till, implies that Joseph would know her after the birth of Jesus. To me, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, this is Matthew's account of the Christmas story. Like, this is, this is the Christmas. Which is more than, than Mark gives us. He gives us nothing. Mainly because he's presenting Jesus as a servant. Who cares about the birth of a servant? This is it. This is the Christmas story. And I'm, I'm really struck by how much of the story that, I mean, Matthew doesn't include, does he? No mention of a trip to Bethlehem with a very pregnant Mary on account of a Roman census. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took to him his wife, did not know her till she had brought forth a son, called his name Jesus. Like, that's it. There's no mention of there not being room in the inn of the stable. No mention of swaddling clothes, a manger, shepherds in the fields, an angelic host singing in the sky. Nothing. Matthew doesn't even mention Santa Claus. How do you have the Christmas story without old Saint Nick? Like all Matthew feels is important for the reader. The reader to know is that Joseph was obedient to the commands of God, stood alongside Mary by marrying her, remained chaste until her term was completed, and names this boy Jesus, just as he had been instructed. That's all Matthew thinks is important for you to know. Now, one of the main reasons that Matthew takes this particular approach rests in the reality that his intention is to clear up a primary criticism of Jesus that had been levied by his enemies, specifically related to his birth, and most notably the identity of his father. Like First and foremost, please keep in mind that everyone knew that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Within all the gospel records, we never see like any alluding to anyone challenging the notion that Joseph had jumped the gun. Never once. Like to this point, Jesus goes to Nazareth. He teaches this sermon, Mark 6, verse 3. The residents of Nazareth kind of snap back at, and, and they say, is this not the carpenter? And then they say, the son of Mary. Not the son of Joseph, the son of Mary. You see, residents in Nazareth had firsthand knowledge of what had occurred. The town's small. Everyone knew each other. People were aware that Mary and Joseph had been betrothed. Why? They had gotten the wedding invitations. When she turns up pregnant, and the wedding gets canceled. Like, this was a scandal. And based on the fallout, everyone knew the child wasn't Joseph's. I'm even sure that it's likely that Mary's crazy explanation, that it was God's kid, had probably circulated through the community as well and been dismissed as lunacy. Like, even though Joseph makes the decision to stay with Mary, and then makes the decision to adopt her boy as well. 
questions as to the identity of Jesus' real father would never stop. In fact, 30 years or so later, in John 8, verse 41, the religious leaders and this tit-for-tat with the Lord, they accuse him of being born of fornication. Like the general consensus in the day of Jesus is that he was a bastard. That was the consensus. Now here's why Matthew tells Joseph's story. Think about it. Of all of the people who who would have had just cause to reject Mary's story of the virgin conception of Jesus, Joseph, that bro tops the list, doesn't he? Like truth be told, people were were likely shocked when Joseph announced he was going to move forward with the wedding. Like why would he do that? when he was completely justified in filing for divorce and moving on with his life. I mean, Joseph was young. He was an attractive guy, was a get for some lady. Like, his entire future's ahead of him. He could pull the ripcord. People probably didn't understand, like, why could Joseph willingly, why would he be willing to raise a child he knows isn't his, yet alone stand by a woman who's been unfaithful to him? Why would you do that? It didn't make any sense. And in a lot of ways, this is Matthew's entire point. Logically, there is only one scenario by which Joseph's actions make any sense at all. Only one set of parameters. He actually believed Mary's story. You see, the one person who had all of the incentive in the entire world to reject Mary's tale, genuinely believed her. Genuinely believed that the virgin he was betrothed to had conceived and that her son was the Son of God. And don't overlook this reality. We know and can say that Joseph genuinely believed. Why? One, he didn't have to. Didn't have to. And two, his life would have been easier otherwise. What motivation did he have? And yet, Matthew wants us to know that, that Joseph had come to know the truth. And he as a just, diligent man, had counted the cost and he had concluded, in light of it all, that there was only one option in front of him. See, Joseph makes the decision that he would rather live a life with Jesus than have a life without him. Now, in closing, I want to draw from Joseph's story two important, but 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 they are vastly different applications. There's no continuity between the two, but there are two. First, and I'm going to take a turn here, so roll with me. Every parent should relate to Joseph and that God has given all of us the job of raising his children. This is something that hit me as I was studying this, as a father of three myself. 
And I know this can be a difficult reality to wrap your brain around in the moment of parenting. But I want you to know this morning, your children are not yours. Like, they're God's kids. They're His. There's, they, they are God's kids that have been entrusted to your care. You know, Mary's experience is unique. But can't we concede the fact that every conception is a miracle? Like, <laughs> the, the science behind two people enjoying a few minutes of pleasure whereby they exchange bodily fluids and they produce a living human being is absolutely unreal. It's a miracle. And yeah, a woman can provide an egg and, and the man some seed, but it's only God that initiates life, that creates in the womb. Parents, the truth is that your kid was created by the God of the universe, a God that has a plan and a purpose for your child's life. And what's scary is that after creating that child, God turned them over to you to care for them, to nourish them, to love them, to protect them, to set them on the right course. Now, it's true. In the end, God will set the destiny of that child. But your main job, my friend, is to do, like Joseph, the necessary things to help facilitate that growth. To help facilitate that process of God making them into who He wants them to be. I will say this, and this is a challenge, man. If you adopt that perspective, that, that little snotty-nosed punk of a kid, uh, not mine, but if you adopt that approach that that kid is God's, entrusted to you. If you really do, that perspective will have a dramatic influence on how you see that kid, how you parent that kid, how you treat that kid, the types of things you prioritize for that kid. I always say this in any wedding that I do to the groom. I, I say, well, while she might be your wife, never forget, she will always be God's kid. Here's the second application, totally different. But you know, if you take a step back from the story, let's just say maybe from the 10,000 foot perspective, and you look at Joseph for just a minute broadly, you will see or note how the process of Joseph's conversion is almost identical to ours. Like at some point, you hear the testimony of someone who sincerely claims to have had a life-changing encounter with God. In fact, if they're a Christian, they make the claim to you that Jesus is now living inside of them. He's come and he's living in their heart. And when you ask, how is that possible? Their response they come back with some type of, like, they had a supernatural interaction with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Similar. And while you might initially think that person has lost their mind, 
Like, that sounds nuts. Joseph teaches us that if you're willing to take some time to think about it, to, to observe a transformation, to think it through, God will always independently speak to your heart, confirming their story. Doesn't he do that with Joseph? Mary tells a tale. Joseph is thinking this sounds crazy. But he's open. He's a just man. He's minded. He's considering. It doesn't make sense. But because he was willing to do that, you know what God was willing to do? And he's always willing to do it. He independently verified everything. From the scriptures, you have a promise that those who seek will find. You know, if it's in the moment, I'll close with the idea that like Joseph, you will have to decide what to do. I mean, Joseph didn't lack free will. He even woke from the dream, right? Could have done what he wanted to do. He had that freedom, had that flexibility, but, but he didn't. He does the opposite. He obeys. But in light of it all, even with God confirming a story, you're still left with a decision, always a decision. You can deny the truth of who Jesus is because you know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, and he was sent to save his people from their sins. You can't escape it. You know it. And yet, you also know that if you do make this decision, that a life with Jesus has major repercussions. I mean, it immediately changes everything moving forward, doesn't it? Again, we see this with, with Joseph. Like, you know that if you make that decision that you will undoubtedly be misunderstood. If you've given your life to Jesus, haven't you been misunderstood? When you tell your parents, when you tell your friends, and they don't get it. Like, you know that moving forward, your life will no longer be about you, right? We'll see this again next Sunday. It's an interesting thing. We will look at the life of Joseph. You can turn it off. It's kind of a good music. I could like really hammer home this point of application. <laughs> you're good, Gibby. When you're in the moment, you know, including Jesus in your life, You'll be misunderstood. It'll complicate things. And then you also know that your life will no longer be about you, right? It'll be about him, the preference of him. We see this with Joseph's life. And yet, I close with this. While all of this is true, and we see it exemplified in Joseph, do you ever think for a moment that Joseph ever regretted his decision to give his life to Jesus? I highly doubt it. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.